0: Good morning, all right, happy new year, um, let's see, uh, happy new year, um, I have to look up these phrases because I really don't know them, and I just butcher them, but you guys are very gracious, um, but uh, Happy New Year. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Uh, What better way to start our new year than by gathering together as the body of Christ uh, to worship our Lord and Savior. Uh, I'm so glad to see uh, you all here. I know many of you probably had late nights last night, so the fact that you're here this morning, I think it's just a testament to um, your desire to honor the Lord and to worship Him Um, to make him a priority, uh, you know, this day, this year, um, and in all of our uh, entire, all of our days. This morning, we are going to jump back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we took a break from our study to remind ourselves of the precious gift of Christ sent to us as we celebrated uh, the Christmas holiday. And while I always enjoy uh, remembering uh, the Christmas accounts and going over them, uh, remembering our Savior's coming in the form of a babe, uh, I am looking forward to just getting back into our verse-by-verse study of uh, of Luke's Gospel. We've kind of been building up Uh, towards uh, the crucifixion. Uh, We're in the final week of our Lord's uh, ministry uh, leading to the cross, and so um, I'm excited to just get back to where we were. Uh, We last left off, for those who uh, maybe just need a little reminder or a summary of where we've been, uh, we last left off on our study looking at some of the events that transpired the Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus has entered into the temple area and he has been confronted by a number of different groups of people. You may recall how certain members of the Jewish Sanhedrin had met Jesus upon his arrival to the temple area early on that Tuesday morning. He was questioned by them. About his authority. They wanted to know uh, by what authority he did the things that he did. And then they wanted to know who gave him that authority. And Jesus actually used a parable to explain to them that his authority was from his heavenly Father, how he had been sent by the Lord and was given authority by the, the Lord. He was then approached by a mixed group of Pharisees and spies, Herodians, that questioned him about paying taxes. They thought they would be able to catch Jesus in a catch-22 type of situation where he would be condemned either way he answered. He would either be condemned by the people for supporting the tax, or he'd be condemned by the Roman authorities for trying to incite some sort of tax rebellion. But Jesus cleverly answered their question about taxes by instructing the people to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. After that, the Pharisees, uh, after the Pharisees, Jesus was then questioned by a group of Sadducees regarding the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they came up with a question that was designed to attack the idea of there being a resurrection, and afterlife. They came to him with some convoluted story about a wife whose husband died without bearing any children, how there was seven brothers in all, and each of them uh, took her to be wife and subsequently died all in turn. And, And then they asked whose wife the woman would be in the resurrection. Jesus informed them how they were greatly mistaken regarding the resurrection, how Moses clearly taught the idea of there being an afterlife in the passage of the burning bush found in the book of Exodus, and how while we give uh, uh, one another in marriage on, uh, here on earth, in heaven they don't do that. And so they were greatly mistaken. He corrected them. No matter who came against him, Jesus was able to answer all of their questions In our text today, we're going to see how Jesus was able to silence his critics and then turn the tables upon themselves, using the religious leaders as teaching points for all the people there in the temple who had gathered to worship the Lord. Jesus was going to teach the people about worship, about the worth of worship, about who is worthy of our worship and who isn't worthy of our worship, and also what is worthy to be called worship. Our text this morning is going to begin in Luke chapter 20, verse 39, and we're going to actually read through to chapter 21, verse 4. The title of our study this morning is Worship Worthy. Okay? Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word? I'm going to read through our text in its entirety from my Bible. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Do your best to follow along in whatever translation you may have. Luke records the following. In Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him any more. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Chapter 21. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. That's the text for us. We're going to pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word, And Lord, I pray that as we have opened uh, Your Word, Lord, I pray that in like manner our hearts, our ears, our mind would be open to all that Your Spirit desires to say and, and teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would continue to be with us. We ask that You would lead us and guide us in all truth, that we would be able to take and receive that which You have for us today, Lord, that we might grow and our understanding of who you are. And we might under- grow in our understanding of, of worship and what is worthy of worship and what is not. <laughs> and so, Lord, I pray, uh, lead and guide us. Bless, I pray, the study of your word, and bless your people as we get into all that you'd have for us. We give you this time in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. You may have a seat. Now, for those of you who uh, like to take notes, outline our text. I know there's a few of you. Uh, we're going to consider the topic of worship. We're going to look at who's worthy of our worship and who is worship, and or, excuse me, and what is worship worthy. And in our text, we're going to consider three different situations and how they relate to worship. Okay. Uh, the first situation, it deals with a conundrum about the Christ in verses 39 through 44. Uh, The second situation deals with a caution from the Christ in verses 45 through 47. And third and finally, we're going to see a commendation by the Christ in chapter 21 verses 1 through 4. But let's take a look at the beginning of this first situation, dealing with a conundrum about the Christ. Our opening verses speak about how the scribes acknowledged Jesus and his ability to properly answer all the various questions that came against him. Whether it was a questions about authority, uh, taxes, or the resurrection, Jesus had all of the right answers. He was able to avoid all of the traps that uh, all of the religious leaders uh, attempts to seize upon Jesus and his words. And the result that was that none dared to question him anymore. And though they were finished with him, he was not finished with them. Okay? He wasn't going to let them get away without answering a few questions of his own. And so he turns to the scribes that had applauded his answers, and he asked a question for them to consider. Verse 41, it says, And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? He asked a very simple question. Um, He said, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? In Matthew's gospel, we find out that he first asked the people a, a simple question about the Christ. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, he opened up this conversation by asking, What do you think about the Christ? Okay, whose son is he? To which they answered, the son of David. Now, I know most of you probably know this, but I want to just make sure we're all on the same page. The word Christ okay, is not Jesus' last name. We say Jesus Christ, but that's, that's not his last name. Okay? That's a title, It is a title that speaks of the Anointed One. That's what Christos means, the Anointed One. It's the Old Testament equivalent to the Messiah, which in Hebrew means the same thing, the Anointed One. The fact that the Christ would come from the line of David was a well-established fact based upon Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet came to David and informed him concerning his throne and his kingdom. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established, again, he says, forever. And so there is this eternal forever kingdom that would be established and set up, and it would be someone who came from the line of David. Isaiah the prophet even spoke of the coming Messiah and his place upon the throne of David. We looked at Isaiah's prophecy during our Christmas celebrations. You may recall Isaiah declared, for unto us a child is born, uh, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it. It will uh, it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of Hosts will perform this. You see, the answer to whose Son is the Christ was an easy answer. That was an easy question, okay? And the Pharisees and the scribes, they got it right. But the follow-up question is where the mystery is. It's where the conundrum comes in. In our text, we read how Jesus followed up his first line of questioning from Matthew's account with the question, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he immediately follows it up, his question, with some commentary. Jesus states that David himself said, In the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 to be exact, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This little commentary Jesus gives makes a bit of a mess of the very simple question of whose son the Christ is. Again, this commentary Jesus gives is from Psalms 110 and I want to carefully unpack things here so that you can understand the gist of what Jesus is asking. In Psalm 110, David is speaking about the Messiah. Hey, it's an announcement regarding the Messiah's reign. David spoke this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, according to Mark chapter 12, verse 36, meaning that it should be understood as being divinely inspired, just like the rest of Scripture's. Paul wrote to Timothy telling him that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The inspiration of the Scripture is an important doctrine of our faith in Christ. The Scriptures are inspired. They are God-breathed. Peter tells us that no prophecy, no speaking forth of God's Word, that is, ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see, the scriptures were written by holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the God breathed and inspired word of God. And so David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, divinely inspired, said, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, in English, we really don't catch the significance of what's going on here. Even in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, we don't see the significance. The two uses of the word Lord are actually different words. In the English, it just says Lord twice. And in the Greek, they both just say Kyrios, uh, which is uh, Greek for Lord twice. But when we take a look at the original quotation in the Old Testament Hebrew, there is where we see the difference. In Psalm 110 verse 1, the first use of the word Lord is not a word at all. But it is what's used to refer to the very name of God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. You see, in the scriptures, and even still today, the Jews did not ever want to write out the full name of God out of reverence towards him and his name. And so what they did was write only the consonants. The English writers of our Bibles have tried to keep the distinction, at least in the New King James Version and many other versions as well when the written name of God was used by using all capital letters for the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, okay? The fancy name for this is the Tetragrammaton, okay? But you don't need to know that, okay? There's no quiz or anything, but that's what it's called, okay? Notice in your Bible, if you look in our text or in Psalm 110, that the first use of the word Lord is in all capitals. That means David is referring to God himself, the name of God. But the second use of the word Lord is a completely different word. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which can be translated as Lord or or Master, okay? But it's not necessarily always used to connect with God. This tells us that David is referring to two distinct people here, okay? And the context of the psalm tells us David is referring to God, the Father, and to the Messiah, the Christ, okay? The anointed one, And so the gist of what Jesus is asking is simply this, how is it possible that David would refer to the Messiah as his Lord while at the same time he is his son? You see, in that type of society, as a very uh, male-dominant driven society, a patriarchal society, the father always ruled. There's no way that a father would call his son Lord. And so there must be more to the situation than meets the eye. The relationship between David and the Messiah is more than just the fact that the Messiah is David's son. David sees the Messiah as his Lord, his master. David sees the Messiah as superior to him. Okay? The Pharisees and the scribes, they got the right answer to Jesus' initial line of questioning, but their answer, while correct, it was sorely lacking at the same time. There was something else they were missing, something of monumental importance. And the only valid answer is that the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord at the same time, that the Messiah is both God, David's Lord, and man, David's son. The Messiah would be 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. Jesus is the answer to the conundrum about the Christ. Jesus is 100% man, born of the Virgin Mary, and at the same time, 100% God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, we just looked at this during our Christmas services. It was the angel Gabriel that came to Mary and said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary questioned Gabriel, how could this be since she was a virgin and had not known a man? To which Gabriel responded, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus was trying to get the scribes to see and to understand that the Messiah was not just some king that was going to come from the line of David, show up and lead a revolt against Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. He was going to be the very son of God. Jesus was trying to reveal the truth about himself to these people, that he was indeed the son of God and at the same time, the son of David, the son of man. Jesus began by asking this group in Matthew's account, what do you think about the Christ? Okay, basically asking, what's your assessment of the Christ, the anointed one? What do you think about him? Jesus was asking, what do you think about me? For He is the Christ. He is their Messiah. He is the one they should fall before in worship. The question about the identity of the Christ is the most important question in the world to have the right answer to. For what you think about the Christ, what you think about Jesus Christ and who He is will determine where you spend the rest of eternity. You see, there are a whole bunch of people out there that don't have the right answer to who the Christ is. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, but he is not. That's not true. Okay? The Mormons say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, the devil. Again, that is not true. Okay? The Hindus believe that Jesus is an avatar of God, a reincarnation of one of their gods. Again, that is not true. The Muslims, they believe that Jesus is a prophet of God, but they deny his deity. Again, that is not true. You see, there are a whole bunch of people out there that have either the wrong answer or an incomplete answer regarding who the Christ is. Jesus is the Christ. As Peter so boldly proclaimed under the inspiration of God the Father, previously Jesus asked his disciples what they thought about him, who they say he is, and that's when Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Philippians 2 states of Christ, who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came as God, but He humbled Himself, taking on the form of flesh, becoming a man and living a perfect life that He might lay it down for us. All will one day confess that Jesus is the Christ, that He is Lord, but only those that do so on this side of eternity will be welcomed into heaven on the other side of eternity. Because Jesus is the Christ come for us, He alone is worthy of our worship. He is the answer to this conundrum about the Christ. He is both 100% God and 100% man. He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. Well, let's move on to our next situation where Jesus shares a caution, okay, a caution from the Christ, highlighting how the scribes seek after the praise and worship of man, but do nothing worthy of our worship. Take a look at verses 45 through 47. It says, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus shared a strong warning against the scribes and their desire to be seen and revered by men. They were supposed to point people to the Lord, but their focus was most often upon themselves. Jesus said, "Beware." Of the scribes. In the sense of that word, beware, it means to to watch out, to be on one's guard, to be cautious or wary about someone or something, uh, to be alert to a situation or to be alert to certain tactics. And then Jesus proceeds to list out six things that the scribes were guilty of doing. We'll note them quickly. Number one, we're told that they desired to go around in long robes. These long robes were stately robes, long flowing robes that reached down to the ground and in some cases even had a train behind them. They were worn by kings, priests, and persons of significant rank. It was something the scribes would wear to symbolize to the people how important they were. They wanted people to notice when they walked into a room. They wanted them, uh, when they walked in uh, to these synagogues and to their uh, places of worship, to the temple, they wanted people to see them, okay? Number two, we're told that they loved greetings in the marketplace. The word greetings in the original Greek actually means to salute, okay? You guys in the military understand what it means to salute someone, Right? When you see someone in uniform that's entitled to salute, you quickly render it to them, right? These scribes, they loved being saluted in the marketplaces, out in the open where everyone else could see. They loved being greeted as rabbi or teacher or master or father. They loved that public acknowledgement. They'd walk around in their fancy robes and they'd get people to acknowledge them and to be saluted by them and they just ate it up. Couldn't get enough of it. They loved it. Number three, they loved the best seats in the synagogues. These seats were known as the chief seats or the first seats in the local synagogues. These seats were reserved for dignitaries and they were situated actually in front of the chest that were containing the sacred scrolls of scripture and they faced towards the whole congregation. They were up in front for everyone to see. Also number four, We see that not only did they love the best seats in the synagogues, but they also loved the best places at feast. They wanted to sit in the seat of honor, at the head of the table, if you will. They loved being the center of attention. And this is so contrary to what Jesus taught. If you guys remember, when we were back in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave us instruction about these celebrations and these feasts that we attend. He said, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." These scribes, these religious leaders, they were all about exalting themselves. They knew nothing of the kind of genuine humility the Lord desires for us as His children. Number five, we're told here that they devour widows' houses. These guys sinned against God, and they took advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. In that day, according to the Mishnah, Uh, First century teachers of the law received no pay for their services and depended upon the hospitality and generosity that would be extended to them by many devout Jews. And apparently, many scribes used flattery and manipulation to wrangle big gifts from those who could least afford to give them, such as widows. These types of shenanigans still exist today, charlatans trying to swindle old widows out of their social security checks. It's a shame that these religious leaders took advantage of the very people to whom they were sent to serve. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James said this in James chapter 1 verse 27. These guys, they went and they visited those widows in their trouble, but they took advantage of them. They swindled them into giving them what little they had. Number six, and finally, Jesus accused the scribes of making long prayers for a pretense. That word pretense, it it speaks of an outward show or appearance. It's something that's put forth in order to cover one's real intentions. These guys went around making long, dramatic prayers as an outward show to appear to be holy, to appear to be uh, really godly individuals, but it was only used as a ruse to cover their true, wicked, self-seeking hearts. These prayers were not offered to God at all, but were rendered unto men. Their prayers sought the audience of man and not God. They wanted men to hear their prayers and think something special of them, to think that they were zealous and pious individuals. And so Jesus cautioned the people to beware of these types of activities from the scribes and the religious leaders. These men thought only of themselves. They were only concerned with self-glorification, self-gratification, and self-righteousness. They had absolutely no concern for God or for others. And it's unfortunate that there are still people out there like this even today. We need to make sure that we heed this warning as well, that we watch out for religious leaders that are only in the ministry for what they can get out of it. And while this caution is primarily speaking about religious leaders, I think some of the principles here apply to all of us. We need to humble ourselves. We need to look to exalt the Lord and not ourselves. We need to look to others and think, what can I do for them instead of looking and thinking, what can they do for me? You know, in my studies, I came across something that I couldn't say any better myself from Warren Wiersbe's commentary on this section. So I just wanted to read it to you. Uh, I want you to listen to what he had to say. I think it is very pointed in regards to our own lives today. Um, I'll just read it. He says this If a person is important only because of the uniform he wears, the title he bears, or the office he holds, then his importance is artificial. It is character that makes a person valuable, and nobody can give you character. You must develop it yourself as you walk with God. What's important before the Lord is not putting on a show for others to see. Okay? It's not looking the part, but rather living a life of faith and integrity that develops your character and brings honor to the Lord. Our lives should be lived as an act of worship to God. Develop a life of character as an act of worship unto the Lord as you walk with Him. Jesus said of these men that these will receive greater condemnation. As teachers of the law, they have the privilege and responsibility to make sure what they are saying is true and representative of the Lord and His word. This is a charge that I take very seriously as a teacher of God's word, but I believe you should take it very seriously as well. James writes, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That word judgment James speaks of is the same word Jesus used here in our text that's translated condemnation. And while I do admit the immediate context deals with teachers of God's law and God's word, this principle still applies to most all of us, mom, dad, big brother, big sister, COs, NCOs, okay, chiefs, petty officers, are you not in a place of responsibility for teaching those who are under your care and under your responsibility? I think we can make a strong case that this exhortation applies to all of us. We all have people that are following our example who we are teaching. And so what are you teaching those whom you have responsibility over? What does your example, what does your lifestyle teach them about you and the God that you serve? What does your character say about your walk with the Lord? You see, if people put into practice the things that your life teaches, will they find themselves drawing closer to God or drifting away from God? Let's make sure that what we say, what we do, how we live our life, that it leads those under our care closer to the Lord, that it leads them to living a life of worship unto the Lord. Because we will be held accountable for steering people away from the Lord. These scribes, they were going to receive a greater condemnation because of their pride, their selfishness, and their hypocrisy. Don't be like them. Heed the caution that Christ gives here. Let's move on to our final section in chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, as we look at the example of the widow and a commendation by the Christ. Verse 1 says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. After cautioning the people about the scribes, Jesus made his way further into the temple uh, treasury area. He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. It's interesting and worth noting what Mark writes about this in his parallel account. Luke and Mark both give us an account of the um, widow's two mites. And Mark writes this, he says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were Rich put in much, Mark 12, 41 says. Jesus was there making observations about how the people were giving. He he didn't pay so much attention to how much they put into the treasury as much as he was noting how they put money into the treasury. Now, according to secular historians, there were 13 different chests that were marked for specific charitable purposes within the temple, within the uh, women's court of the temple. And they had upon them trumpet-shaped openings to funnel in the money that was being tossed into the boxes. And some suggest that these trumpet-shaped openings were made out of brass, and that you could hear the people when they would give their money. They'd come with their little sack of coins, and they would drop it into this trumpet-shaped uh, horn, and go tink, 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 as it rolls into the uh, chest, the box that was set out there for the different charitable uh. Places that you can direct your givings. Jesus previously condemned those who did their charitable deeds to be seen by men, and who sounded the trumpet when they gave. When they gave, Mark Matthew six two tells us that. And perhaps this is the imagery that could be tied back to the sound the trumpet-shaped funnels made when people gave. We can't be for certain, but based upon historians and what they suggest, it would seem to indicate that's what was going on, right? You got your bag of coins, you dump it in there and it makes a really loud noise and look at me giving uh, to the Lord. Anyways, Jesus noted how the rich gave and he also noticed how one poor widow gave. The rich put in much, but the one poor widow put in two mites. Now, the word mite here refers to the bronze lepton coin. It was the least valuable of all Jewish coins. Two of them were only equal to about one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was a fair day's pay for a common laborer. Now, Sometimes we read currencies and we have no idea how they relate to our life today. And so I wanted to try and figure out how much is that in today's day and age, okay? Today's federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. I know certain states are shooting it really high up into the $15 an hour range and whatnot. But the federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour which would be considered a fair day's pay for a common laborer. We might c- consider that to be kind of like a denarius type of idea. So an eight-hour day, you would earn $58 in wages if you were making seven twenty-five dollars an hour. Eight hours at that rate, $58. One sixty-fourth of that would be 90 cents. Okay. In today's U.S. economy, that would be the equivalent of what this lady put in, less than a dollar is what she put in, in today's mindset or currency. One sixty-fourth of a common laborer's day's wage. Now, in regard to this giving, Jesus noted how they gave, but as we see in our text, he also noted how much it cost to give. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had, Jesus was more concerned with what it cost to give than he was with how much they gave. It wasn't a matter of portion, but proportion. It wasn't a matter of quantity as much as it was quality. What was more important to Jesus was not the quantity that they gave, but the quality of that which they gave. How costly was it for them to give? The rich they gave out of their abundance. That that word abundance, it means to be or have more than enough. It speaks of that which is left over, that which remains. It speaks of exceeding a number of measure which marks fullness. So they were full, they had everything they could ever want, and then they had excess, they had abundance, and that's what they were giving to uh, the Lord. The rich were giving out of their abundance. Now Jesus doesn't condemn those who gave out of their abundance. He doesn't condemn people for having money. The emphasis is not upon the rich that gave, but upon the poor widow who gave. Jesus is commending the poor widow's giving and explains that because her gift cost her so much more, that it was valued more than all the other gifts that had been put into the treasury box. This was a poor widow. The word poor here means helpless. It's someone in abject poverty, utter helplessness, complete destitution. It speaks of a beggar. Added to her poverty was the fact that she was a widow. Her husband was no longer with her. She had no means to support herself. She was dependent upon the generosity of others, the people like the scribes who were going around and devouring widows' houses. God had taken from her the man that she loved, the man who cared for her and provided for her, and yet here she comes to the temple ready and willing to give her all to the Lord. The very God who took her husband from her, she's coming to worship without any hesitation. This poor widow came and she tossed in her two mites, which was actually all that she had. Jesus said that she put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Two mites wasn't much, but it was all that she had. and She gave it to the Lord. And I think it's so very interesting that this woman had two mites. You know, if we were there watching her give, and we knew that these were the last two coins to her name, we would have encouraged her to keep her money, or, or, or to at least keep one back, right? Keep one for yourself. She had two. She could have just given one and kept back the other, right? But the amazing thing is that this woman gave both the coins, Nobody would have even blinked an eye if she would have kept one of those coins back for herself. She probably still would have given more than everyone else there. I mean, how many of the rich people were giving 50% of their entire livelihood? My suggestion to you is that not a single one of them was. And so this woman, if she would have only given one, she still would have given more than everybody else. What do we learn from this woman about giving and that which we offer as worship to the Lord. A few things. We're going to note three things here, guys. First, we must realize that God is not concerned with how much we give as much as He is with how we give. The Scriptures attest in 2 Corinthians 9-7 that we are to give as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. When we give, God doesn't want us to do so grudgingly or reluctantly, your translation may say. When we give, it shouldn't be done unwillingly or complainingly or stingily, okay? God would rather you just keep the money if you're going, that's how you're going to give. If you can't give okay, without feeling like you're unwilling to do so, then just keep it, okay? Also, when we give, it's not to be out of the mindset of necessity or by compulsion Okay? If you need to be compelled to give, okay? if someone has to coerce you and compel you to do it, don't do it. That's not how God wants you to give. And this may come as a surprise to you if you frequently view very many televangel- televangelists out there, but God does not need your money, okay? God is not broke, okay? Heaven is not going to go bankrupt if you don't give. The Scriptures attest of our God that every beast of the forest is His, and the cattle on a thousand hills are His. God doesn't need us to give to Him anything. He doesn't need our money. People on TV or or radio talk about how their ministries need your financial support, and if you don't give, they won't be able to continue to provide the ministry that they offer. You know, at the end of the year, I get a in the ministry, I get a lot of these end of year. It's the end of the year, you know, we can't continue unless you give, you know, you need to give. And and then I I just don't like that, okay? Maybe the best thing to do for that ministry is to pull the plug and let it die. If we need to resort to begging people for financial support in order to continue ministry, then the best thing may be just to to close up shop and direct our funds to a place where God is moving, where God is providing, right? If their testament is, God, we need more money because God's not providing for, we need you to give us money, and that's how they have to compel people to give, maybe that's not a place we should be giving our money. Maybe God's not working in that area. I'm a firm believer that where God guides, God provides. If it's God's will, then it's God's bill. And He is a debtor to no man. He will provide for the ministries that He is using. You know, the last part of 2 Corinthians 9 7 states that God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful in the Greek is the word hilaros. You can almost sound it out in English. It's where we get our word hilarious from. Our giving should be done hilariously. And I'm not trying to suggest that we all bust out laughing as we drop our offerings into the agape box or however you give. But what I'm saying is that giving should bring to you great joy. Okay, It is a blessing to be able to give back to God that which He has given to us. It should be something we look forward to doing. It should be something that we do with great joy. Now, the second thing I think worth noting regarding our giving is that God is concerned more with quality than He is quantity. How much does your giving cost you? Is it a sacrifice? Because some could give thousands of dollars and it doesn't cost them much. They can make it back up in just a a couple months. For others, 5 or $10 may be the difference between eating or not. Don't think that it takes a lot to please our Lord or that what little you have to offer won't please the Lord. God is blessed when we give sacrificially to Him, no matter how much or how little that is. You know, there's an interesting portion of Scripture in 2 Samuel 24 that sheds a little bit more light on this subject. There in Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, David had been instructed to go to the threshing floor of Arunah and build an altar to the Lord and give a sacrifice. And when David showed up to Aruna's place and informed him of his intentions to buy his threshing floor from him and to build an altar to the Lord and bring a sacrifice to the Lord, Aruna actually said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice, a threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O King Aruna, has given to the king. But David responded to Aruna, declaring, No. But I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David would not offer to the Lord something that cost him nothing. David knew and understood the importance of how much our giving costs us. That if it doesn't cost us anything, it really isn't a sacrifice. If it isn't a sacrifice, is it really then worship? Third and finally, I think we learned the importance of complete surrender in our giving. This woman gave her whole livelihood. She trusted God to take care of her and to provide for her. And I believe that's where God would want us to be as well. Jesus gave us everything. This woman gave her everything. And God desires us to be willing to do the same. He wants us to be wholeheartedly committed to Him as an act of worship unto Him. Amen? Amen. You know, this little portion about the poor widow and her mite, her two mites, seems to be someone out of place. If you kind of are following along as we've been going verse by verse and just reading along, Jesus has been dealing with all sorts of challenges from the religious leaders, questioning him, trying to trap him. There's been back and forth questioning uh, between them, almost like an interrogation. Jesus even blasting the scribes for their sinful ways. And then we get this story about a poor widow giving her two mites. And it may seem a bit out of place, but let me suggest to you that it is a perfect fit. Jesus was questioned about paying taxes to Caesar, and he answered, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This poor widow is doing just that. Jesus was questioned about the marriage and who people will be married to in the resurrection. Jesus fixed their way of thinking by telling them there isn't marriage in heaven, and more importantly, that there will be a resurrection, because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This poor widow demonstrates through her worship that she knows the living God and that she looks forward to being united with him. You see, the actions of this poor widow are a demonstration, an example of the truth Jesus has been teaching about there in the temple. It is a beautiful act of worship that we get to glean from. As he combated these different questions, this widow basically becomes the capstone, the example of what that looks like in our lives as we worship the Lord. We're going to close our service this morning by participating in communion. It's the first Sunday of the month. It's the first Sunday of the year. And so a great time really to remember the Lord and everything that he gave to us. His life, his victory over sin and death, the opportunity to have a right standing with God, to enter into his presence. Matt, hopefully, was able to restring his guitar, uh, but he's going to come back up, and he's going to lead us in a time of worship. The ushers, they're going to come. They're going to help distribute the communion elements, and I want to just encourage you guys to worship the Lord as we commune with him. I want you to consider the Lord, how worthy he is of our worship. Okay? And at the same time, I want you to take inventory of your own lives and the things that we offer unto the Lord. Are they worship worthy? Right? Do they align with the standards for worship as seen in the widow and in the life of David? What things do we need to lay upon the altar in sacrifice as an act of worship? Are there things that we must confess? Or are there things that we must repent of? If so, I want to encourage you, do that at this time. Okay? Confess those things to the Lord. Repent. Truly, he is worthy of our worship and of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our confession, our repentance. May he be the focus of our hearts as we worship him and remember what he has done for us.